Well, good morning, and welcome to Christ Community. Uh, my name is Tim Spamberg, and I actually serve at our Shawnee Mission Campus as the campus pastor. Uh, if you remember vaguely that there was someone with a beard who preached a, a while back, that was also me uh, back in September. I was here, and, uh, and given uh, kind of the moment we're at as a church, we, uh, we thought this is, probably makes sense to do some pulpit uh, swapping, uh, especially given the moment our campus um, is that so Nathan's up preaching in Shawnee this morning and I'm I'm down here and, and we didn't plan it for me to be here on the morning of the congregation or the evening of the congregational votes um, uh, together and yet in God's providence that, that's how it worked out. And and so for many of you who were here back when I was a resident at our Olathe campus and we launched in Shawnee, um, um, I hope you come tonight and take this next step with us. Vote yes. Come help us uh, move out of a middle school and into a, a building that's our, our permanent um, home. And for those of you who have come since and you're like, I don't, I don't know you. Uh, why should I vote for that? You know, uh, for you, uh, we, the reason we left, the reason we, we went and planted Shawnee wasn't just to reach people in Shawnee. It was also to empty seats here uh, for you to come and to, to find a home, to find a church uh, to be a part of. And so we hope you'll come and take this next step um, with us as, as well. And this morning was actually a great example of, of the difference between mobile church meeting in a middle school and a, and a building. Uh, so I have, it was me and I have an associate pastor, Andrew, um, and I got a text from him this morning. Uh, he was throwing up sick, and, uh, and it meant I had to make an emergency stop at the campus to kind of help with some of the setup stuff before I came down here. And so the thought of not having to do that anymore uh, is quite amazing. Um, and so we'd love to have you uh, just with us tonight as we take, um, take that next step uh, together. Um, and, and with that, we're going to preach, uh, continue the series in Advent in I Isaiah 40. And so I'm actually going to read a little bit of a longer text. So Nathan preached Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to actually read the rest of the chapter. Uh, and I'm going to take, some of it's going to be from the message, because Eugene Peterson and his paraphrase of this passage really captures the Hebrew poetry well. And some of the ESV um, kind of mixed in there as well. So this is like the Tim Spanberg version uh, of Isaiah 40. And like I said, it's longer, but I hope you hear this, this poetry. It's really beautiful, um, and it's going to set us up well for the message. So hear now the word of the Lord, Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 31. Who has scooped up the ocean in his two hands, or measured the sky between his thumb and little finger? Who's put all the earth's dirt in one of his baskets, weighed each mountain and hill? Who could ever have told God what to do or taught him his business? What expert would he have gone to for advice? What school would he attend to learn justice? What God do you suppose might have taught him what he knows, showed him how things work? Why the nations are but a drop in a bucket, a mere smudge on a window. Watch him sweep up the islands like so much dust off the floor. There aren't enough trees in Lebanon nor enough animals in those vast forests to furnish adequate fuel and offerings for his worship. All the nations add up to simply nothing before him. Less than nothing is more like it, a minus. So who even comes close to being like God? To whom or what can you compare him? Some no-God idol? Ridiculous. It's made in a workshop, cast in bronze, given a thin veneer of gold draped with silver. Or perhaps someone will select a fine wood, olive wood, say, that won't rot. Then hire a woodcarver to make a no-god, giving special care to its base so it won't tip over. Have you not been paying attention? Have you not been listening? Haven't you heard these stories all your life? Don't you understand the foundation of all things? God sits high above the earth. The people look like mere ants. 
He stretches out the skies like a canvas. Yes, like a tent canvas to live under. He ignores what all the princes say and do. The rulers of the earth count for nothing. Princes and rulers don't do much. Like seeds barely rooted, just sprouted. They shrivel when God blows on them. Like flecks of chaff, they're gone with the wind. So, who is like me? Who holds a candle to me, says God? Look at the night skies. Who do you think made these? Who marches the army of stars out each night, counts them off, calls each by name, so magnificent, so powerful, and never overlooks a single one? Why would you ever complain, O Jacob, or whine Israel, saying, God has lost track of me. He doesn't care what happens to me. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. For even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we all get worn out. We all get weary. We all want to give up. And Isaiah wrote this chapter so that we wouldn't. And as we open up your word, wherever we find ourselves this morning, would you, would you mount us up on wings like eagles? Would you renew our strength that we could run and not grow weary, that we could walk and not be faint? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's a long scripture, um, but it's about one thing. And so take all of what I read and, and just summarize it this way, which is Isaiah wants you to wait for God. I mean, everything that he says, all of this meditation leads up to this line, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. He wants you to wait for God. And that raises the question, why? Why is he so concerned about that? And, and one reason is obvious, and that's that human beings, we are we're terrible at waiting. Just in general, for anything. And an example of this, for me, since the beginning of my life has been Christmas, which uh, my mom growing up had very strict rules about how Christmas was to operate and to work. And one of the, the non-negotiable rules was no presents could be opened until Christmas morning. Like under any circumstances. No, if, like, if a present under the tree could save someone's life, she would say, no, that person has to die for the good of Christmas. Right? That's... There were no gifts to be open until, uh, until Christmas morning. And so uh, as an adult, uh, I just I do not care about that rule anymore. And so my, I got uh, a present from one uh, that we're getting our boys that I'm super excited about. They're not in the room, so I can say this. It's a video game system. And, and we got it in the mail, and, and a couple days passed, and I thought, you know, I probably had to turn this on make sure it works. You know, make sure... <laughs> Make sure the pieces are there, things are in functioning order. And so one night after dinner, I go into to our room where it's hidden, and I turn it on. I make sure it starts working. And it's the, the one game we've got at this point is Mario Kart. No amens. Okay, that's fine. I mean, it's, it's your own spiritual journey. I get it. But uh, I, I turn it on, and it's like, well, I, you know, I download the game, make sure it works. And so, I, you know, 10 minutes later, I'm playing Mario Kart, 
in the bedroom and I hear my wife yell out, Tim, where are you? I'm playing with my children's Christmas presents in our bedroom. That's what I'm doing. Like, I'm hiding it. And, and that's, I'm terrible at waiting. And, and obviously, uh, clearly, Isaiah does not have Christmas gifts um, in mind here. But we're, we're just bad at, at waiting. And when it comes to, like, spiritually, like our spiritual life, when it comes to God, this is really problematic. Because, like, at some point, God is not going to do something or he's going to withhold something that's really important to you. And you're going to have to wait for him. And I would bet almost all of us this morning are waiting for something from God. It could be something small. It could be something big. We all have to wait on God. And Isaiah is incredibly concerned that, you, that we won't. That we'll stop waiting. That we'll give up. And Isaiah 40 was written to people waiting, and Nathan went into this a little bit last week, that the, the important point for this morning is that the people Isaiah is writing to, they lived away from their homes. So they were all, they were Jewish people, they were from Israel, but they weren't living in Israel at this point. They were living in Babylon in a different place. And Isaiah has, has basically said, God is, in the first 11 verses, God has said, your waiting is about to come to an end. You're about to return back to your home, but not yet. And so you have to keep living in this place that doesn't want your good, that doesn't believe in God, that is, is a really hard place to be. You have to keep living there. And even though I'm not doing anything yet, you have to keep waiting. Keep waiting. I'm going to take you home, but not yet. And when you get in that position with God, it's easy to begin to wonder, am I waiting for nothing? Can I tr like, is God going to do what He says? Can I trust Him? Can I keep waiting. And Isaiah wrote Isaiah 40 so that you would keep waiting. And as he lays out the chapter, he lays out uh, two dangers, two warnings that will make you stop waiting. And then he gives a powerful meditation for us to just, to just read and dwell on and live in as to why we can always wait on the Lord. So two dangers and why we can wait. And the first danger is the danger, I'll, I'll say this, the danger of settling. And what I mean is, is, is throughout Isaiah 40, this is probably what stood out to you the most, is that Isaiah meditates on the fact that God is the creator, and he uses this powerful poetry to meditate on these, these, uh, this, this fact. And so he talks about God as someone who can scoop up the oceans with his two hands. Right? So if you ever, I mean, if you ever stood on the beach looking at the ocean, God, and God doesn't literally have two hands, but like God can scoop up the oceans with his two hands. Hands. God can measure the entire sky between his thumb and his, and his finger. That God sweeps up islands like they are dust on the floor. That's who God is. And so all of this builds to this question, this, like, this question Isaiah wants to pose to us, that he wants us to answer, to think about, which is, who is like God? Who can you compare God to? And that's our problem, because the answer is obviously nothing. Like, there's no one you can compare God to. Like, no one else can scoop the oceans in his hand or measure the sky between his thumb and finger. You can't compare God to anyone, but we try. We try to compare God. And what we do is we settle, and we begin to make, we make a home and a place, this earth, we make home and a place that was never meant to be our home. 
And Isaiah explains this in a way that probably doesn't resonate with us, but hopefully it will after I unpack it a little bit. Because the people who Isaiah is writing to, they lived in a place where when they worshiped gods, they made idols. And so the religious practice of that day was to make idolatry or to make little idols. And, and Isaiah, I mean, he just mocks this practice in verses 19 and 20. I'm going to read the ESV um, now. But Isaiah is like, don't, don't take this creator God and make a little idol. Here's verses 19 and 20. An idol... A craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold, casts it for silver chains. He who is too poor for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. So what Isaiah says is like, you, you're, what, if, you, if you give into idolatry, what you're doing is you're trading the God who like scoops up oceans with his hands for a statue that you have to make, you have to pay for, and you better make sure it's constructed really well because if you don't construct it really well, it'll, it'll move. Literally, Hebrew means it'll tip over and fall down. I mean, Isaiah's mocking this, like the idea that you'd make your God, you'd put it on the table, and if you don't make it well enough, someone might bump the table and your God would fall over and fall to the ground. Like you don't want your God falling on the ground, right? He's just mocking this idea, and, and, and they're settling, they're ch- exchanging the God of the universe for a little statue. And we, like, because we live in a modern, you know, modern age, we're very skeptical of any religious claims, especially ones that would say, you know, this God's an idol, and we just don't believe that anymore. And yet we do the same thing. The, for example, uh, the famous story of Christmas Carol, uh, um, the first uh, Christmas, or the first uh, spirit that visited Scrooge, the, the ghost of Christmas past, he takes Scrooge to this moment in Scrooge's life when he's with this woman that he wanted to marry, and she says to him, I'm not going to marry you, and the reason is because you have an idol. And Dickens, even though he wasn't a Christian, he uses this language, you have an idol, and your idol is, is money. And you, you just want to make money with your life, and because you want to make money with your life, you don't have any room in your heart for me, a bride, and so we can't be married. The Dickens and understood we take money, we make it, and we build our lives around it, we construct our existence around it. It's not just, it's not just money, it's, it's, it's our careers or it's our, our, our children's lives. We live vicariously through them. It's, it's our expectation of what our life should look like. And what, it, what inevitably begins to happen is when, you're, when you take up life with God, He makes you wait which means you're not in control. You're in a position of vulnerability. He's in control. You're in a position of not quite passivity, but you, you have no control over what God's going to do in, in your future. And what idolatry does is it lets you get control again. Maybe God won't give me what I want, but I'll, may, I'll make enough money to get what I want. Or maybe God won't give me what I want. I'll carve out another path to get the life that I want. From my, and Isaiah, is, he's concerned that these people will give up on waiting for God and settle into the home, into Babylon, the place they lived, and give up on God. And we're in, in the second week of Advent, and, and I, was, I was curious before the series started how Christians began to like, celebrate the birth of Jesus. And what's interesting is back you know, three or 400 years after Jesus was born, as Christians were thinking about how do we celebrate the birth of Christ, what they decided to do, Advent was a four-week season, but the first two weeks, so we're in week two of Advent right now, the first two weeks of Advent were spent reflecting on the second coming of Christ. And then the last two weeks were reflected on the first coming of Christ. And the idea was to to, to make us for this season feel we're in this in-between point where Jesus has come, but we're waiting for him to come back. That crucial to every one of our existence right now as a Christian is that we're waiting for Jesus to do 
what he said he would do, which is return. And in the midst of that waiting, it is incredibly easy to settle, <laughs> to make a home here with things as gods that were not meant to be gods. They were meant to be good things, but not gods. And over time, we lose this powerful meditation of God as creator. The one who scoops up the oceans in his hands. The one who can sweep up islands like they are dust on the floor. And we, we go Monday to Saturday and we don't even think about that. That everything you're going to experience this week is experienced in the context of a God who is in control of history. And who's asked you to wait for him. To not give up on him. To wait for him. And yet I get many, many of you are probably like me. You, it's so easy to turn our attention to other things, to settle down into this life and forget the Creator God. And so this Christmas, don't, don't settle. Be unsettled. This is not our home. This is a great place. There's lots of really good things here, but this is not our home. We're in a position of waiting on the Lord. And Isaiah was clear that they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. And they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Don't settle. So that, that's the first danger. The second danger that Isaiah talks about that he's afraid of is this, what I'll call is the danger of cynicism. And so for a lot of Isaiah 40, he meditates on this immense power of who God is. He scoops the oceans with his hands. He dusts the islands like, like, you, know, like you would dust the kitchen floor. Um, that's danger one. But then I, Isaiah meditates on how... You know, not just how powerful God is as creator, but how, how insubstantial and unimpressive we are as human beings. So verse 22, God is, he's above the earth and he looks down and the people are like mere ants or grasshoppers. Verse 23, we have princes and rulers, right? They have immense palaces, they're impressive, but to God, God ignores what they say and do. Rulers count for nothing, verse 23. They shrivel when God blows on them. Verse 24, human beings, we're, we're frail. We wither away. But Isaiah meditates throughout Isaiah 40 on just the immense frailty of human beings. Um, I preached this message last week in, in Shawnee, and in the Monday, kind of leading up to Sunday, I got a call from my dad uh, Monday morning as I was in this text uh, meditating on and getting ready to preach it, and, and he got a call from my dad, and my Aunt Sandy, uh, who was uh, 79 years old, had passed away that morning. And my Aunt Sandy, she was a strong, uh, just a tough woman. Um, and I think a, a story that kind of summarizes her life, uh, she married my Uncle Chuck, my dad's brother, and uh, one day uh, my Uncle Chuck came home from work, and my Aunt Sandy was up on, on their house cleaning uh, windows. And my Uncle Chuck has this weird uh, uh, sense of humor that runs very strongly through my family line, uh, through all the men for some reason. And, and he, had, he decided he's going to go up and shake the ladder and make her laugh, you know, and, and flirt with her a little bit. So he does that. He gets home from work. He shakes the ladder with her on it. Uh, she was not amused at this. Uh, she did not find this funny. And she got down from the la ladder and she plops the rag in my uncle's hand and she says, you're going to finish cleaning the windows and I'm not cleaning windows outside ever again. And for the next 50 years, she never did. She kept that promise. She was a tough woman. Like, you, just, you did not take anything from, like, she just wouldn't take it. She wouldn't have it. Um, and yet, the last, uh, the last four years of her life, she had Alzheimer's um, disease. And, 
And so this very strong, tough woman who was always the source of hospitality for any family event, it was at her house. Um, she's, she's a tough woman. Uh, we, you just saw her just get weaker and weaker and weaker and move from the person who cared for everyone else um, to be the, become the person who, who needed to be cared for, who needed to be looked over and watched over. And it was, it was a reminder of the frailty of human life. That even the toughest of us, we, we wither. And in a world where, where we're all withering away, cynicism is really easy. To begin to look at the world around us and think, this is it. Why wait for God? There, all there is is death around us or withering or, <laughs> or the frailty of human, human life. Merry Christmas, right? And yet, that's, that's where Isaiah builds his meditation. Right before we get um, what I think are some of the most powerful verses in all of the Bible, um, God speaks in verse 27 through Isaiah, and he, he says to us, to Israel, and I, I, Eugene Peterson nails the translation here. He says to us, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? God has lost track of me. He doesn't care what happens to me. Those, those are the words of a cynic, someone who has, has looked around at the withering, frail nature of human life and said, um, there's no hope here. God's forgotten me. If there is a God, he's lost track of me. And Isaiah understands. And he doesn't want you and I to stop there, to give up. And when, uh, when early Christians began to think, when should we celebrate Jesus' birthday, it wasn't just they wanted to spend the first couple weeks reflecting on the second coming of Christ. The other question they had to answer is, what time of year do we, do we celebrate the birth of Jesus? Because we don't know that the, December 25th was actually, like, that's when Mary went to labor and the thing happened. Like, we don't know that for a fact. Um, and the reason why they picked December is uh, it's the winter solstice. It's the darkest time of year. And the thought from the very beginning of the birth of Jesus, I mean, this goes back to the Gospels, back to Jesus' friends meditating on his life. The thought of Jesus' birth was into the darkness comes light. And actually, Isaiah, uh, who was the first one to announce the birth, very specific birth of the Messiah, um, when he announced that birth, that this, there'd be this Messiah figure coming, this king coming, this is the language that he chose to use, Isaiah chapter 9. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Skipping a few verses. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That into the darkness comes light. In the midst of our cynicism, God says, wait because they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. So that, that's danger too, um, is that we'd give in to cynicism. But why, okay, so why wait for the Lord? I mean, that's the question. Like why in the midst of, of everything around us, this you know, hard life, sometimes great, sometimes hard, in the midst of this life, why make our life about waiting for God. And, and Isaiah presents this really powerful picture 
of God renewing our strength. And, and, and really the image is meant to say, imagine a worn out, tired person ready to give up and God coming and renewing their strength. And so I, I try to think, when was the time in my life I was the most tired into being the most rejuvenated, like the most, you know, just wing, you know, uh, just strength beneath my wings. And, and the time that I thought of that came to my mind was that in, in my early 20s, uh, I went on a long road, West Coast road trip with a few of my friends, and we hiked the Grand Canyon. And kind of the, the, the lead up to the hike of the Grand Canyon, we'd been backcountry hiking. Basically, my diet had been uh, tortilla shells and beans with cheese, and then we ran out of cheese. And that, let me tell you, that was a big difference between the tortilla and beans with cheese and without. So that, that's all I've eaten for days. We go down, we hike the Grand Canyon, you know, go down five, 6,000 feet. Uh, we come back out nine miles, go back up five, 6,000 feet. Um, and I had never been that dirty, that tired, that hungry in my entire life. But I knew once that was done, our next stop after the Grand Canyon was we were going to go to Los Angeles where one of the guys I was going, uh, was, was there with, uh, one of his uncles lived in Los Angeles, and, and one of his uncles was the creator of the show Home Improvement. So I just assumed this is probably a decent house uh, to, li- to go to, and it, w- it was a very nice house. And so we get to, we get to Los Angeles, and, and the tortilla beans diet was exchanged for In-N-Out Burger, which I know Nathan has trained you well. Like this is, this is the Lord's food, In-N-Out Burger. And, and at the house, they, had, they didn't just have one pool at that house. They had three pools at that house. And so I went from tired, dirty, hungry, hiking the Grand Canyon, eating tortilla and beans, to sitting poolside in Los Angeles, eating In-N-Out Burger. And if you've ever eaten In-N-Out Burger, like this is, you just, it, it lands with you, right? This is, this, is, this is a powerful moment of rejuvenation. And I felt that, this from one place to another. And obviously it's ridiculous to compare that to Isaiah 40, but that's what Isaiah wants us to imagine as human beings who are tired, who are worn out, who are ready to give up, who are ants withering away. And, and then God comes to us and he offers us an exchange. And this is what the exchange is in verses 27 through, through 31. Some of the most powerful words in the Bible Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. For even youths shall be faint and grow weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So Isaiah 40, he spends all of this chapter meditating on God scoops up the oceans with his hands and he sweeps up the islands like dust and he can measure the sky between two of his his fingers. He weighs the mountains in buckets. And we are, we're ants, we're withering away. We're weak, we're frail, we give up. And God, at the end of this, he's, he gives us his attention. And he looks at us, frail and weak and withering away, and he says, let me have that. Because I don't grow faint, I don't grow weary, I last. Right? The, I love, the Hebrew, the Lord is the everlasting God. Look, I mean, it's just two words, God lasts. We don't. And God says, I want, I want you to last. So wait for me and let's, let's enter into this, 
this exchange. And that ultimately, that's what Christmas is about, is the one who sweeps up the islands like dust on the kitchen floor, the one who scoops up the oceans in his own hands. He stoops to us, and he offers us his power and his strength and his might, and he says, let me have your frailty and your weakness and your, and, and, and your fact that you want to give up. Let me have that, and you take my strength. And so this morning, what, what is wearing you down? What would make you want to give up on God? What would make you want to stop waiting, to settle, to give in to your cynicism? Because we have so much more reason to wait on God than the people of Isaiah ever had. Because we know Isaiah 40 to be true in a way that they, that they did not. That when we look at the life of, of Jesus, that Jesus, who was a young man in his early 30s, at the height of his strength, we see him as he is, is, is beaten and crucified, becomes so weak and frail, he actually falls to the ground. That, that in, uh, in Roman crucifixion, they actually made you carry your own cross to your place of death. And it's clear that Jesus couldn't do that. He was so weary. He was so worn out. He was so tired. He fell down, and a man named Simon of Cyrene had to take the cross off his back and carry it the rest of the way. Jesus, the Son of God, the one who was with, with the Father in the beginning, creating the oceans and the islands and the sky and the sea, the one who was there in the beginning with all of the power of creation itself, he grew weary, he grew faint, and he fell. So that you and I wouldn't have to. So that we could have his strength, so that we could have his power and his might. I mean, God is very clear about this. Let me give you what is mine, and let me do it through your Son, Jesus. And so every Christmas we come back to this place of waiting. We know he came already and we're waiting for him to come again. And every Christmas we should come back and ask these, these questions to ourselves again and again. Have you not known? Have you not heard? God doesn't come and go. God lasts. He's the everlasting God, the creator of of the heavens and earth. He does not grow faint. He does not grow weary. We do. Even young men, they fall, they faint, they grow tired, they give up. But not the Lord. And they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. So keep waiting. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we wait for you this morning, we sing, we preach, we open your word, we gather as your community, waiting and expectant that your spirit will come in and minister to our hearts to keep us full of faith and waiting on that day when Christ will make all things new. And so, Lord, for those who have, have settled into this life, God, like me, didn't think much of you this week, just operated this week forgetting that you, the Creator, has turned your attention to us. You want to know us, be known by you. Lord, open our hearts to know you. And for those of us, Lord, that this life has worn us down, we're ready to give up, we're tired. Bring us to this text and Spirit, renew us. Keep us waiting day by day for the good news of, of Jesus' return and making all things new. And in the words of, of Isaiah 35, keep us strong, free of fear, for you, our God, is coming to save us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.